Our scripture reading this morning comes from the letter of Paul to the Galatians, chapter 2. We've been working our way through this letter. Today, we've come to the verses 17 through 21, and to give that background, we will read verses 11 through 21. But when Cephas came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. For before certain men came from James, he was eating with the Gentiles. But when they came back, when they came, he drew back and separated himself, fearing the circumcision party. And the rest of the Jews acted hypocritically along with him, so that even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy. But when I saw that their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas before them all, If you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how can you force the Gentiles to live like Jews? We ourselves are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners. Yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law, because by works of the law, no one will be justified. And then here begins our text. But if in our endeavor to be justified in Christ, we too were found to be sinners, is Christ then a servant of sin? Certainly not. For if I rebuild what I tore down, I prove myself to be a transgressor. For through the law I died to the law, so that I might live to God. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. I do not nullify the grace of God, for if righteousness were through the law, then Christ died for no purpose. So far. Beloved congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ, about 500 years ago, there was a very unhappy monk living in the German city of Erfurt. His name was Martin Luther. He was unhappy because no matter what he did, he knew things were not right between him and God. He had even become a monk a person who does not marry and devotes himself full-time to religious work and religious studies. And even that was not enough. He knew in his heart it was not enough. Looking back on it later on, he said, When I was a monk, I was unwilling to omit any of the prayers 
But when I was busy with public lecturing and writing, I often accumulated my appointed prayers for a whole week or even two or three weeks. Then I would take a Saturday off or shut myself in for as long as three days without food and drink until I had said the prescribed prayers. This made my head split, and as a consequence, I could not close my eyes for five nights, lay sick unto death, and went out of my senses. But it still wasn't enough. Worst of all, he realized that nothing had actually changed within him. He wrote, I tortured myself by the multitude of my thoughts. Look, exclaimed I, you are still envious, impatient, passionate. It profits you nothing, O wretched man, to have entered this sacred order. Eventually, by studying Paul's letters, a letter to the Romans, he understood that we can only become righteous through faith in Jesus Christ. He wrote, There I began to understand that the righteousness of God is that by which the righteous lives by a gift of God, namely by faith. Here I felt that I was altogether born again and had entered paradise itself. Luther had rediscovered righteousness through faith. The truth that God makes people righteous through faith and faith alone is central to our identity as Christians. But do we fully, completely understand what that means? Consider what the Catechism says in Lord's Day 12. It asks the question, why are you called a Christian? What would your answer be? What would your natural response to that be? It would probably be because I live a Christian life. I keep the Ten Commandments. Or maybe you wouldn't say that personally about yourself, but certainly unbelievers would say that about you. They would say being a Christian means that you keep the Ten Commandments or at least live as good a life as you can. That's what it means to be a Christian. This is what they believe. But the truth is that this answer is wrong. You are not a Christian because you live a Christian life. Lord's Day 12 spells it out for us. It says, why are you a Christian? Because I am a member of Christ by faith, not because I keep God's law. Now, you might think to yourself, well, somebody, a Christian who says he's a Christian but, but doesn't keep God's law would be a hypocrite. But our text gives us a different way of thinking about these things. It says that you cannot be a Christian if your life is based on God's law. And it is true, we do read the Ten Commandments every week, but that is not what makes us a Christian. Keeping God's law is not what makes you a Christian. In fact, we can go even further than this. We can say that you cannot be a Christian if your life is based on God's law. That thought might seem strange to you, and, and on some level it might make us even nervous Sounds like it has the smoke of heresy about it. You cannot be a Christian if your life is, is based on God's law. But it's actually core to understanding the gospel. And our text this morning will explain why. So this will be our, our entry point into this text. You cannot be a Christian if your life is based on God's law. And there's two reasons for that. 
The first is because he died to the law. The second is because he lived to God. So our text begins with a question in verse 17. It says, But if our endeavor to be justified in Christ, if in our endeavor to be justified in Christ, we too were found to be sinners, is Christ then a servant of sin? Now this is a hypothetical question. It's the kind of charge that, that the law-abiding people might throw at Paul. They, they might say something to him like, Paul, you say that you're trying to be justified in Christ, but all that you're really doing is exposing yourself as a sinner. But what does he mean by that? What does he mean when he says, we too were found to be sinners? By what standard? Well, by the law that they had abandoned. Don't forget, Paul is writing here as a Jew. The Jews were people who took God's law very seriously. And Paul was raised in that tradition. He was raised as a Jew. He didn't just have the Ten Commandments. He had the ceremonial laws. He had the civic laws. He had the whole Torah. He more than likely had the whole thing memorized. He was, as he later wrote in his letter to the Philippians, circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. It was a profoundly religious man. But when he encountered Christ on the road to Damascus, he left all of that behind and he put his faith in Christ instead. So the question in our text is, if you stop keeping these Jewish laws, then you're no different from the Gentiles. Doesn't that make you sinners like them? By the standards of the law, Gentiles were sinners. They didn't practice circumcision. They certainly didn't keep the Ten Commandments. They didn't separate themselves from unclean things. They ate food that was not kosher. By the standards of Old Testament law, that was sin. And if faith in Christ draws people away from that law, well, then the only alternative for them is to also be classified as sinners. In, the, in this scheme, there were either Jews or there were sinners. And if you, if you get drawn away from keeping this Jewish law, well, then the only other category is sinners. And you could argue by that standard that Christ is a servant of sin because the people who follow him leave the safety of the law. The whole way that this question is worded, the problem is that, that the whole way that this problem is worded shows us that, that we need more than just the law. Because Jesus was not a servant of sin. Jesus was the most holy man who ever lived. He is the son of God and the son of man. If you look at life only from the perspective of keeping the law, if that's your only perspective then you undervalue who Christ is. And that was a problem with his Judaizers as well. They were trying to take the law of God and add Jesus onto that. And in, in some ways, it doesn't matter which part of the law you pick. When Paul says law, he means all of it. But if we were to restrict ourselves to only the ceremonial or only the, the moral, only the Ten Commandments or, or only the food laws, it, it doesn't matter which of these you pick. The law in its entirety you take that, and they were trying to add Jesus onto it. They didn't see him as the fulfillment of the law, but at best as an example of a really good Jew. And he was so much more than that. 
He was so much more than a good example. You can have a lot of respect for Jesus. You can treat him as a good example, as the best. You can venerate him even as as a great prophet like the Muslims do. But if you only ever see him as a good example, you will never know who he really is. Paul indicates that the way that this question is worded is wrong. It's wrong because it assumes that there are only two options in life. Either you you keep God's law or you don't. If you don't, you're a sinner. If Christ draws you away from keeping God's law, then he must be a servant of sin too. But he wasn't. Paul says, no, 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 certainly not. He says, this, he says this, he puts this in the strongest possible way that you can in the Greek language. That expression, certainly not, at the end of verse 17, you cannot say no any stronger than that in their language. And categorically, emphatically, completely says no. How can Christ be a servant of sin when he is the Son of God himself? It makes no sense. He, he gets back to these people, so to speak, hypothetically speaking, and he says to them, look, the, the problem doesn't lie with Jesus. The problem is us. In verse 18, he says, if I, if I rebuild what I tore down, I prove myself to be a transgressor. You see, people who believe in Christ don't base their life on the law anymore. But if you're going to go back to the law, if you're going to base your life on, on it again, if that defines who you are, if you rebuild what you tore down, then you're, then you're the one who says that you're a transgressor because you went back to the law. The law says those who break it are transgressors. You've broken God's law every day of your life. You're acknowledging that by going back to it. It's not Jesus who made it that way. It was you. You're the one who did that. You're the one, he says, who keeps on going back to this law, the law that says that everyone who doesn't obey everything written in the book of the law will be cursed. You're the one doing it. Here's what you need to understand. God's law was never meant to make you perfect. All it can do is show you that you are already a sinner. That's true for us today, and it was true for the Jews and for the Gentiles back then. The Gentiles didn't keep the law at all, so they're sinners. The Jews were constantly performing rituals prescribed in the law to purify themselves from their sins that the law said that they had committed, so they were sinners as well. Everybody is a sinner. Jesus didn't bring sin into the world. Jesus showed the world that it was sinful. The gospel unmasks everybody who thought that they could be right in God's eyes by keeping the law. And the Pharisees saw that, and they knew that, and they were completely threatened by it. It was an existential threat to them. That's why they crucified him. That's why Paul persecuted his followers before he became a Christian himself. And now he's writing to these people, and he says to them, don't go back to the law. You, you Jews who became Christians and are now trying to blend these two things, don't go back to the law. If you go back to the law, that's the standard that you're stuck with. In the words of Lord's Day 24 of the Catechism, the righteousness which can stand 
before God's judgment must be absolutely perfect and in complete agreement with the law of God. That's the standard. If you go back to the law again, you're saying that you are a transgressor. You were not justified in Christ. Therefore, you were not forgiven. Therefore, you are still in your sins. Therefore, Christ did not save you. Therefore, the law damns you. And then what was the point of having Christ die in the first place? Even if, even if you could become righteous by keeping God's law, by the very fact of, of trying and, and aiming for that, you're still saying that Christ died for no purpose. You cannot add this kind of thinking to the gospel. It really is either or. If you rebuild the law, then it was wrong to turn to Christ as they did as at first. Either you're saved through faith in Christ and Christ alone, or you are not saved at all. There's no middle ground. There's no in-between. There's no way to have a foot in either camp. So how, how then do we fit all these things together? We, we understand this. We are not to base our life on God's law in the sense that, that we consider it to be meritorious. But we cannot pretend that it does not exist either. Right? We, still, we still respect the law. We still read it here every Sunday. How do we relate to it? And Paul says, by death. By death. Verse 19, through the law, I died to the law so that I might live to God. He goes on to say in verse 20, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. So how does that work? Well, the answer is that through faith, we are united to Christ. Our relationship with him is so close that we are legally identified with him. This is, this is legal, technical language that he's using. And it's hard to find an analogy, an analogy that isn't wrong. All analogies are flawed on some level. But maybe one, one analogy that could help us understand these things is the analogy of two companies merging. You read about that in the newspaper. Sometimes you get a merger and acquisition, right? And often what happens is um, a smaller company will be bought out by a bigger one, and then the smaller one merges into the bigger one. And all of the employees that worked for the smaller company, or most of them anyway, will, will now work for the bigger company under a new name. That can, that can help us to grasp this concept of being united to Christ. Through faith, we belong to Him. Our, our lives, so to speak, were, were merged with His. And so when He died, it was as if we did. Once you are a member of Christ by faith, you have died to the law. It no longer condemns you. The law cannot condemn people who are dead already, right? It's a legal reality. Paul says in verse 20, I have been crucified with Christ. When did that happen? When, when were you crucified with Christ? When did you die with him? When you believed. As far as the law is concerned, we don't live anymore. Christ was cursed, Christ bore the penalty, Christ died. Therefore, we did. 
Once someone dies, the law has no more jurisdiction over that person in this life. And that goes for any law. This is, this is common the world over. It's a, it is a, a, a fact of reality just as much as, the, as that the sun rises. When someone dies, the law has no more jurisdiction over him. Some of you may remember what happened in 2017 during the trial of Slobodan Praljak. Slobodan Praljak was a Croatian general who appeared before the International Criminal Tribunal because he had committed war crimes. He was sentenced to 20 years in prison. When he heard that verdict, he stood up and he said, Judges, Slobodan Praljak is not a war criminal. With disdain, I reject this verdict. And then he drank a little bottle of poison. And he died very, very soon after that. So at that point, the law had no more jurisdiction over him. He might have been sentenced to 20 years in prison. Well, he can't serve that time anymore because he's dead. The law has no more control or jurisdiction over him. Now, it's a a somewhat gruesome example. But it serves vividly to illustrate what Paul is saying here. His point is that as far as the law goes, we don't live anymore. Christ was cursed. Christ bore the penalty. We are joined to Christ in faith. You might wonder, where does your baptism fit into that? Well, all of these things were depicted for us in baptism. Your baptism was like a visual explanation of what Paul was saying here. The water represents being united with him in his death and being purified from sin so that you can live a new life to Christ. And faith is your response to your baptism. Faith is when you make that your own. Paul says, The life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. As a believer, you may make that confession your own. It is yours to make. The Son of God loved me. He gave himself up for me. He did it for you. What was he thinking about when he died? He was thinking about his people. He was thinking about you as he died on the cross. If he loved you enough to die for you, would he then not also give his life to you now? If you've put your faith in Christ as your Savior, you are righteous in the eyes of God. You are justified. Remember what justification is. Justification in the theological sense means to be declared righteous. It is a legal declaration that all of the claims of God's law are satisfied regarding that person. And that happened when Christ died. As a Christian, you are no longer under the law. Your life is not based on God's law anymore. You die to the law. And so you live to God. You can live to God. We're going to look at that in our second point. Christ is not a servant of sin. He came to destroy it. One of the most marvelous texts in this whole marvelous collection of texts called Scripture is 1 John 3 verse 8. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. 
But then John goes on to write, No one born of God makes a practice of sinning. For God's seed abides in him. He cannot keep on sinning because he has been born of God. A similar thought is expressed here by Paul when he refers to living for God. Why did you die to the law? So that you can live to God. In other words, so that you can live in faithfulness to him. You didn't die to the law so that you can go off and do whatever you feel like doing. Because that's always going to be sin if it's not God's will. You died to the law so that you can live to God, so that you can live in faithfulness to Him. Now, how do you know what God wants from you in your life? Well, that's where the law comes back. Not as something that passes the sentence of death over you, because you've already died to the law. But as something that reveals the will of God, and the will of God is more than just good behavior. The will of God is that we are completely sanctified, that our union with Christ would bear fruit in our lives, that we would be conformed to his image. That is the will of God. And the law can help, you to, help to guide you in this. Often the Old Testament law is divided into those three categories, um, civic, ceremonial, and moral, right? So the civic laws, the, the, the laws that govern the, the nation of Israel, the ceremonial laws would then be the ones that govern the sacrificial system and the moral laws and uh, in a way um, um, lie behind all of those. A moral law would be the Ten Commandments and, and the principles of the moral law are expressed in the, in the civic and ceremonial regulations of Israel. Now the ceremonial laws ceased with the coming of Christ. The letter to the Hebrews explains this very thoroughly. The civic laws ceased with the... With the um, ceasing of Israel as a nation. In uh, 70 AD, the Romans came and they, they completely destroyed the nation. But both the ceremonial and the civic laws were expression of the underlying moral law, which you find in the Ten Commandments. And, and, and that, that moral law is what we read every Sunday. We read the Ten Commandments every Sunday. But we don't do it so that you can learn how to become more acceptable to God. You already are. You will never, you will never be more acceptable to God than you are at this very moment in Christ. Do you realize that? If you belong to Christ, you will never be more acceptable to God than you already are now. But the Ten Commandments help us to see what a Christ-centered life is supposed to look like. That means that your life as a Christian is not defined by the law. It is not defined by keeping the law, which would be legalism. It is not defined by ignoring the law, which is antinomianism, being a law unto yourself. Instead, it is defined by Jesus Christ. He is central to our life. Every other part of our life, of our behavior, of our thoughts, of our words, of our motives, of our inclinations, everything revolves around Christ. He is central your life is defined by how you stand in relation to him. And all of these other ways of defining your life put the law back in the middle where Christ is supposed to be. A true Christian does not do that. We put Christ in the middle. We're joined to him in faith. And his life flows through us like our blood flows through our veins. Every thought that we think, every word that we speak, 
Every decision that we make is shaped by our relationship with him. That is what it means to live to God. That's what it is. So your life is not based on God's law, but that does not mean that you ignore God's law either. In fact, once you know who God is, once you truly know, you're going to love his law with all your heart. Think about the words of Psalm 1, Psalm 19, Psalm 119, all the other psalms that, that all, all celebrate the beauty, the perfection of God's law. Once you know who he is, you'll love his law with your whole heart because it expresses who God is. The law is the thoughts of God. The law is the expression of God's character. The law tells us who God is in many ways. When he says, for example, you shall not commit adultery, it's about so much more than what you do with other people. When he says you shall not commit adultery, he's saying about himself that he is eternally faithful. That he lives in a relationship with his people that, that, that he will never break. And that because this is who he is like and you are being conformed into his image, you should become like that as well. It's a whole different way of looking at the law. What's the alternative? The alternative is that you make it up yourself. A lot of people live that way. They have a nominal commitment to Christ. They grew up maybe in the church or their ancestors did, members of whatever church at some point in time, and maybe somehow they, they have some exposure to Christianity. And they might even talk well about Christ, but in the end they live life as they please. They make it up as they go along. Well, that's not living to God anymore. And such a person should not think that he or she is a Christian. Or that he or she is saved. Martin Luther worked out this relationship between law and faith so well in his commentary on Romans. He said, faith is a living, daring confidence in God's grace. So sure and certain that a man would stake his life on it a thousand times. This confidence in God's grace and knowledge of it makes all men glad and bold and happy in dealing with God and all his creatures. And this is the work of the Holy Ghost in faith. Hence a man is ready and glad without compulsion to do good to everyone, to serve everyone, to suffer everything in love and praise to God who has shown him this grace. And thus it is impossible to separate works from faith quite as impossible as to separate heat and light from fires. See, he nailed it. That is what it means to live by faith. That is exactly what it is. When you live by faith, you are empowered to fight sin in your life in a way that the law could never do for you. You are not just dead to the law. You are dead to sin. The law tells you what sin is. The law, in a sense, gives you something to transgress, or at least highlights it. But those who are joined to Christ in faith are no longer under the dominion of sin. He begins to renew you by His Spirit. You begin to realize that even though you are in the flesh, you live by faith. Even though you are mortal, you already have the, the glow of immortality about you. And you live in a constant tension. A tension between this age and the age to come. 
between your life in the flesh and the life of Christ that is now within you. So don't try to base your life on the law. If your life is based on God's law, if it is defined by God's law, you've never really understood what any of it is about. If you really understood the law, you would see how completely it condemns you. The problem with trying to base your life on God's law, it's ironic, actually. The problem with trying to base your life on God's law instead of His grace is that you don't actually take sin seriously enough. Martin Luther had a supervisor called Johann von Staupitz. Von Staupitz once said, You want to be an imaginary sinner and to regard Christ as an imaginary Savior. You must accustom yourself to think that Christ is a real Savior and that you are a real sinner. Anyone who bases his life on the law is not taking sin seriously enough, is not has not truly understood its power to condemn. But that person is also not taking Christ seriously. By basing your life on the law, you're not showing love to God. You're rejecting His love. Do you realize that? You who, who try to live out of the law, who try to live out of what you do for God, do you realize that you're actually rejecting Him? It's true. As Paul says in verse 21, again, if righteousness were through the, through the law, then Christ died for no purpose. And it is, that is an unthinkable conclusion. Don't, don't use the law for that. Don't come to that point. Don't nullify the grace of God in your life. You cannot be a Christian if your life is not based on God's law. You die to the law. You live to God. You've been crucified with Christ. You don't live. It's Christ living in you. The life you now live in the flesh, you live by faith in the Son of God who loved you and gave himself for you. The Son of God loved you and gave himself for you. That's a true gospel of God's grace. Now what, what could be greater than that? What else do you need if you have that? What else do you need from this life other than to know that the Son of God loves you and that He gave His life for you? If you have Him, you have everything. So why are you called a Christian? Because you are a member of Christ by faith. So believe in Him. Hold on to Him. Trust Him. And you will be saved. Amen.